0: Brother Andrew, he was a Dutch Christian missionary known for smuggling Bibles into communist countries during the Cold War. He once said, God does not choose people because of their ability, but because of their availability. You know, every human being was created with a purpose, a specific plan for each one of our lives, a reason that you were put here on this earth. And of course, we all want to know what that purpose or reason is. And for Christians, we often frame that question within the context of our calling, right? What, what is God calling me to do with my life? Which is a question we should all be asking ourselves. And of course, uh, some of us wrestle with that question a lot because the Bible isn't always that specific, if we're being honest when it comes to our individual daily lives, right? I, I have yet to find the verse in the Bible that says, Rob Ruchi is supposed to start a church in South Carolina in the month of October, the year of our Lord, 2012. I'm pretty sure it's not, it's not in there. I certainly, I certainly couldn't find it back in March of 2012 when Mary Beth and I were at the end of our time living in Alaska trying to figure out what in the world we were supposed to do next. I mean, that verse would have been extremely helpful. Right, I mean, it's, it would have sped up the process of moving back here and, and starting this church, which, by the way, we're absolutely convinced was God's specific will for us to do. And yet, it's just not there in the Bible. What is there, however, what, what is in fact all throughout Scripture, is the call of Christ for us to follow Him and what that looks like for all Christians across the board, okay? Uh, Jesus was very clear about what following Him would look like for everyone who would ever make that decision. The Apostle Paul was very clear what following Jesus would look like in your life. The Apostle Peter and the other biblical writers, those early followers of Christ, they were crystal clear about what would be required of us and what it would cost us, every single one of us, to follow Jesus Christ. And yet beyond those common characteristics that are to define the life of every believer and follower of Christ... We just don't have, written in His Word, specific detailed information concerning each individual personal choice that we're confronted with day after day in each one of our individual lives. I'm talking about things like, you know, which house should I buy, or which city should I live in, or which job should I take, or which person should I marry, or which church should I go to, and on and on. And of course, the Spirit of Christ who lives inside of every Christian, is as active today as he's ever been, and he speaks today just as he always has. So, of course, we're to rely on his guidance and wisdom for those kinds of decisions for our daily lives, because we have to. But listen, if you think about it, it sort of begs the question, why? Why didn't God, in all of his infinite wisdom and absolute sovereignty and foreknowledge, in addition to his holy scriptures, why didn't he just write a personal note to every single believer who would ever follow him, outlining detailed instructions for every single decision we would ever be faced with each day of our individual lives, right? And, and look, before you dismiss that as totally ridiculous or impossible, just remember who it is we're talking about here, right? The same God who spoke the heavens and earth into existence. The same God who directed a giant sea creature to swallow a man whole and then spit him back out three days later. The same God who made a donkey speak, the same God whose hand supernaturally appeared to write a message on a wall to a Babylonian king. I mean, seriously, if God wanted to, certainly it is within the realm of his ability to include with the birth of each one of us a written message outlining the specifics of each day of our lives in detail. So, why didn't he? Well, in fact, he did. He did. Psalm 139, 16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God did write down in his book, in heaven, which we talked about last week, references to it all throughout scripture. He wrote down a detailed description of every single one of your days before you ever existed. He did. He just didn't give you a copy. Oh, why? Because he wants you to learn to rely on him. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul wrote, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. God wants you to learn to rely on Him through every trial, every burden, and every struggle because He's not calling you, by the way, to something that costs you nothing. In fact, He's not calling you to something you can manage on your own. That's why we are all, every one of us, called into the body of Christ, the church, because we need God and we need each other, because He's not calling you to something convenient or easy or safe or predictable. Listen, I'll just tell you, if you believe you can answer the call of God on your life without ever taking a risk for the sake of the gospel, you're sorely mistaken. There's no version of following Jesus Christ where you come out unscathed. There's no version of following Jesus Christ that costs you nothing. There's no version of following Jesus Christ that is popular to the masses, and there's no version of following Jesus Christ that will make your life easy. No, following Jesus means you're going to have to do some hard things. At times in your life, it means you're going to be rejected by other people. At times in your life, it means you're going to have to give up some things at times in your life for the sake of the call of God on your life. Because the call of God on your life is bigger than just your life. You understand what what God's word says about why you're here and how you're supposed to live while you're here? It's so much bigger than which house you're dying, or what car you end up driving, or what city you end up living in, how much money you end up making, and all the other things we spend so much of our time fretting over. And listen, do you understand, I'm not saying those things don't matter. By the way, they actually they do matter. In fact, often those things we're talking about here have a profound effect on how we answer God's calling on our lives. If we're faithful with what He's given us, at least uh, Mary Beth and I have raised our three kids mostly between two places a 900-square-foot apartment, two bedrooms, one bath in Alaska, and then a 768-square-foot cabin up here in the mountains after we moved back from Alaska. And listen, in terms of using those two homes for ministry, we made the most of every square inch of both of those places, and we were grateful for them. But the fact remains, we were limited the whole time in what we could do from a ministry standpoint out of those two homes. And then a couple years ago, through, as most of you know, a crazy housing market, and some people that God used to bless us with an incredible piece of property, a lot of saving, a lot of prayer, a lot of fasting, and probably the fact that I'm a builder, by God's grace, we were able to build what is for for us our dream home. And it's significantly larger than uh, any other home we've ever lived in by far. I'll tell you this, I am certain without a doubt that God was pleased to give us that blessing. But that house is not just a blessing for us to have. That house is a tool we're meant to use to help us accomplish his calling on our lives. And I'll just tell you, in the last almost two years that we've lived in that home, we've done more ministry in that house than all the other homes we've ever lived in combined. We have a a big thing happening there tonight, right? You get the point. Those things that God gives us are wonderful blessings, and he is well pleased to give us those blessings. But those blessings are a means to an end. They exist to help you accomplish the call of God in your life because you cannot accomplish anything good without him and the resources he provides, including each other, by the way, the church. Notice when the Apostle Paul talks about calling, instead of talking about where God wants him to live or what kind of tents he should make or even what the churches would look like that he plants in each city he travels to, Uh, Even though all of those things helped Paul accomplish the mission before him, notice what Paul focuses on when he talks about his calling. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, Romans 1, 1 through 6. Can you see how much bigger Paul's vision for his calling was, how much bigger his vision was for the reason he was put here on this earth than simply where he would live in his personal preferences for each day of his life? You understand it's no different for you and me? Your life is so much bigger than all of these temporal things, and there's so much more at stake than our personal preferences along the way. God's calling is always bigger than anything you can dream up or manage on your own. It always involves risk. There's always an element of unknown, and it is always, always bigger than you. That's why you have to learn to rely on Him and others all along the way. One of the things that Mary Beth and I tell every single couple we meet in premarital counseling is this. We, we, start, uh, we, we tell, tell them to start thinking now. You start thinking now, before you're married, about what your marriage is going to be about that is bigger than your marriage. What is your life together going to be about that's bigger than just the two of you? Because there's always a purpose, a plan, a calling on your life and family that is bigger than you and more than you can handle on your own because, listen, God never calls people to safe, manageable, predictable, risk-free lives. His disciples lived on the razor's edge because they had to if they had any hope of fulfilling the calling on their lives. And again, it's the same for you and me today because He wants us to learn all along the way to rely on him and on each other, as we'll see in our story as we continue working our way through the book of Nehemiah. So let's pick the story right up where we left off last week at Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll begin with the first eight verses. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, "'How long will you be gone, and when will you return?' So it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, "'If it pleases the king, let letters be given me "'to the governors of the province beyond the river, "'that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, "'and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, "'that he may give me timber to make beams "'for the gates of the fortress of the temple "'and for the wall of the city "'and for the house that I shall occupy.'" And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Uh, so just a brief recap here uh, of chapter 1 last week, in case you weren't here. In, in uh, 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came up against the Jews and he laid waste to Jerusalem. He killed its inhabitants. He burned the temple and the other buildings. He broke down the walls of the city, smashed the gates. Ultimately, uh, we know it was because of their own apostasy, the the Jews' own disobedience to the command of God. So uh, the word says the Lord's wrath was upon them. And as a result, the surviving Jews were taken into exile in Babylon. And then almost 50 years later, 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia comes along and overthrows Babylon, absorbing all of that kingdom's territories. And ultimately, he controls basically the entire Middle East. And then in the first year of uh, King Cyrus's reign over the new territories, God stirs up Cyrus so that he begins to release the Jewish exiles, allowing them to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Now that all starts in 2 Chronicles and continues through to Ezra where in chapter 4, verses 7 through 23 of that book, we find the new king of Persia, Artaxerxes, our king here in our story, crushing the Jews' efforts to rebuild, as Ezra puts it, I'm quoting, by force and power. And so as the story of Nehemiah opens in chapter 1, Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer to the king, encounters some of the men of Judah, and he asks about the state of the returning exiles and Jerusalem itself. And they describe to Nehemiah the aftermath of this devastating crisis. And Nehemiah is completely wrecked over it because the city is reduced again to nothing more than ruins and being surrounded by hostile neighbors, Jerusalem is now alone. And so in response to this alarming news, in addition to great mourning, Nehemiah begins fasting and praying, knowing that his only option is to approach the king himself and ask him to change his official position on Jerusalem because as the cupbearer, Nehemiah is the closest member of the royal court to the king, which also means the risk couldn't be any higher, because by making that request, Nehemiah, of course, would be directly going against a decision the king has already made, which in the king's eyes could very easily be seen as a deep betrayal from his closest confidant, which could spell even further disaster for the Jews and, of course of Nehemiah himself. All of that brings us up to chapter 2, our text this morning. As Nehemiah finally has an opportunity to approach the king, or finally works up the nerve to approach the king after four months of fasting and praying. It's during a great festival, probably in honor of the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, as verse 1 describes it. And the Persian kings, by the way, were famous for their drinking parties. That was an ancient custom in the Near East. And so Nehemiah, as the king's cupbearer, is working the party. He's serving the wine, and as he hands the king his wine, the king can clearly see that something is wrong with Nehemiah, because in Nehemiah's own words, I had not been sad in his presence. In other words, after four months of mourning, fasting, and praying, Nehemiah's distress is written all over his face. Clearly, the king can see that Nehemiah is depressed about something which had never been the case before. And being as close to the king as he was, the king wants to know what's bothering him. Not to mention, all the people are enjoying the party, right? So why should the cupbearer spoil it for everyone else by being so depressed? And so he puts Nehemiah on the spot. Why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. Nehemiah is terrified to answer. Because not only does he have a, a big ask for the king... But the very description of what is bothering Nehemiah is a direct result of the decisions the king has made, which Nehemiah is about to explain to the king, potentially painting the king in a negative light in front of the entire party. Right? Let's listen again to what Nehemiah says. After asking the king to not only return his earlier decision in front of his wife, right, and, and the royal uh, court, the rest of the royal court, the king's the, guest, the king's guests at the party, right? You talk about the potential of hurting the king's pride in front of all these very important people that the king has an interest in impressing. Nehemiah asked him to not only reverse his decision about Jerusalem and the Jews, an earlier decree, but also to allow him to leave the king's service, to go back to Judah for 12 years, by the way, we know that from chapter 5, and begin rebuilding the city. But that's not all. He also asked the king to inform all the governors of the surrounding areas and nations of the Trans-Euphrates region, that's the area Nehemiah would have to travel through, that, that the king had reversed his earlier decision, effectively granting Nehemiah safe passage. And by the way, Nehemiah says, I'd also like for you to pay for this massive project as well with your own resources from the king's forest, the forest of the Lebanon. This is completely ridiculous. And if you think about it, for Nehemiah to make these requests to the king of Persia, which is why Nehemiah is terrified to begin with, and yet the king agrees. And Nehemiah knows exactly why. The king granted me what I asked, he said, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Right? Well, how does he know the good hand of God was upon him? It's because of what he did before he ever asked the king for anything. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed. To the God of heaven. You can just picture it, can't you? In the middle of this party, the king calls them out, says, man, what's the problem? He says, well, my city's destroyed, the, the people, my, our fathers, where our graves are, are in ruins. And he says, what are you asking? And Nehemiah, Nehemiah says, just, just give me a second. He goes and prays. Before Nehemiah said a word in response to the king of Persia, he called upon the king of kings. And as Nehemiah leaned into God, He knew that God was with him. You see, the more you rely on God, the more evident it will become that God is with you. No matter how big, how dangerous, how seemingly impossible the calling may be, I'm telling you, when God calls you, He promises to be with you. In fact, He has to be. Because you cannot answer the call of God on your life without a total reliance on Him. You can't. Nehemiah was learning to rely on God because as wealthy as he was, as successful as he was, as comfortable as he was, as influential as he was, and as close to the king of Persia that he was, Nehemiah knew that none of that would amount to anything if God wasn't with him. And so before he did anything else, Nehemiah prayed. He leaned into God because he knew he could trust God more than all those other things combined, right? I shared some of this with you back in our Revelation series a little over a year ago. There are approximately 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. About 2,000 of those have already been fulfilled, by the way, to the letter, with zero errors, while the rest have yet to be fulfilled. That's 2,000 promises made good, 2,000 commitments satisfied. Now, if you were to consider the last 2,000 things that you committed to do in your life the last 2,000 promises you made to yourself or to others, how many of us could say that we fulfilled every single one of those commitments as exactly as we said we would? You don't, you don't need to answer because I know the answer. It's not, not one of us. None of us. Right? Whether intentionally or not, sometimes it's just a matter of uh, being unable to fulfill Commitments that we make to no fault of our own. Sometimes circumstances beyond our control dictate an inability to follow through with the commitment. And of course, at other times, we simply don't do what we say we're going to do. Sometimes we just simply don't follow through. So look, whatever the reason, whether intentional or not, there isn't one of us who can honestly claim to be 100% reliable when it comes to doing exactly what we say we're going to do every single time. Not one of us. Which is why, incidentally, when people tell me that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, which I get all the time, my response is, okay, so you mean to tell me you're not? You're not a hypocrite? Really? Because listen, Christian or not, there isn't a human being alive who perfectly lives up to their own ideal about how life should be lived. Not one of us. So yeah, the church is full of hypocrites, which means you should feel right at home. Because like it or not, you're a hypocrite too. We're all hypocrites down to the last man. God, on the other hand, is flawless. When it comes to doing what he says he will do, his track record is perfect. He always, without exception, does precisely what he says he will do, and he's proven it over and over and over again, at least 2,000 times in Scripture. And yet if you think about your own life, When I think about my life, if we're being honest, the amount of time and energy we spend thinking about how to solve problems, how to deal with our troubles, how to overcome obstacles without talking to God, it's probably far more than we'd like to admit. It's certainly the case with me. The truth is most of us spend an inordinate amount of time and energy relying on things other than God to meet our needs, even though all that He's ever done is proven Himself to be reliable and faithful and capable to meet our needs over and over and over and over, and over again. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it, because if you compare your track record of being reliable to God's, I mean, it's not like you're a close second, right? We're, we're never going to be as trustworthy as God is, and yet most of us trust ourselves far more than we trust God. We do. We may, not, we may not want to admit that, but the truth is when whatever it is that we believe is best for us is different than what God's Word says is best for us, most people will choose their own way rather than God's because we trust ourselves more than we trust Him. And then when it doesn't work out, well, then we turn to God because for most of us, He's a last resort instead of a first. And the question is, why are we like that, right? Especially when you consider his track record compared to ours, and the fact that he never fails, even though we continually fail. Why in the world don't we choose to rely on God more than we rely on ourselves? Well, and I'll just tell you, part of the answer is that often we're looking for the, the, big, the big answer, the big download from heaven, the big revelation that is God's plan for our lives. So You know, we go to prayer meeting or we fast and pray for some period of time or we ask our friends to pray with us because we want God to reveal this big plan for our lives so we can get on with it. And when it doesn't come that way, when we don't get the big picture or the big answer we're looking for all at once, it's so easy to take matters into our own hands because we think we need to rely on our own wits and wisdom, our own resourcefulness to make things happen because it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. Now look, As good and necessary as prayer meetings and fasting and praying with other people is. And all of that is necessary. Of course, that's why we're in the middle of the Daniel fast we're in right now, because of the need that we have. But listen, I'll just tell you, as far as your daily life goes, that is generally not where the vast majority of direction for your life comes from. It's not the great sermon or the voice of the prophet, or the latest groundbreaking book, or sage advice from a friend that will ultimately get you where you want to be. Again, those things are good and sometimes even necessary, but by far and away, the overwhelming amount of divine direction that you will ever receive from God throughout your lifetime on earth comes from daily walking with Him in constant conversation with the Holy Spirit, learning to rely on Him more and more and more each day. It's the seemingly small, daily, ongoing conversations with God that reveal your steps for that day. That's what gets you where you need to be. You want to know why He chooses to reveal so often His big, profound, earth-shaking, revolutionary plan for your life, piece by piece, bit by bit, day by day, instead of all at once? It's because when you only get what you need for each new day as each new day comes then you have no choice but to rely on Him every single day after day after day. And here's the most amazing part about it. The reason God wants you to have to come to Him each day after day for your daily needs, right, we're supposed to pray, Jesus said, for our daily needs. It's not out of some sadistic desire to keep you begging, to keep you in want. No, the reason God wants you coming back to Him day after day after day is because more than anything else, He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you and talk with you every single day. He wants you to be close to him, to come to him with every question for every need and every trouble, big and small. Why? Because he has a good plan for your life and he wants to share it with you, not just through a prophet or a preacher or a friend, but through a deep and daily relationship, one-on-one with you, where more and more and more each day, you're learning to rely on God. And that's the point. Because we want the big download, the big revelation from God, that watershed moment where He reveals His plan that sends us off into a a whole new direction and adventure. And all the while, we're missing out on His plan for our lives today. Because we're not listening to that low whisper that spoke to Elijah in the wilderness as he sought the direction of the Lord for his life, as described in 1 Kings 19, where Elijah, who's being hunted by his own people who want to kill him, he's hiding in a cave on a mountain, and he's desperate to hear from God for some direction, for some kind of plan for his life, to find out what's next. And as Elijah waits, it says, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake of fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 1 Kings 19, 11 through 13. Now listen. We know from other stories in the Bible that God certainly can speak through the wind. He can speak through an earthquake, and he can speak through a fire. And he could have done any of those things with Elijah, but instead he chose a low whisper. Why? Because he wanted Elijah to come close. You see, when there's a hurricane, we run away from it. When there's an earthquake we get away from it. When, when there's a fire, we stand back away from it. But when someone is speaking to you and they whisper, what do you have to do to hear them? You have to come close. God wanted Elijah to come close so he could tell Elijah what was next for him for that day. You understand why God doesn't tell you everything at once? because he wants you to come close to him every single day. And listen, until you learn to rely on that still small voice, that low whisper, that steady, ongoing spirit-to-spirit conversation that he wants to have in relationship with you every day, until you learn to pray without ceasing, as the Apostle Paul says, then you're going to continue living from mountaintop to mountaintop experience, from church service to church service, from prayer meeting to prayer meeting, from revelation to revelation, missing out on all the days in between where God is speaking no less in your life. Because he is speaking. He's speaking every day. It's just that usually it's a low whisper. You just may not be listening. Look, this is a lesson that some of the greatest men and women of the faith have had to learn throughout human history. So why do we think we would be any different? Okay, if you're pursuing the call of God in your life, no matter how difficult or costly it may be, God is with you every step of the way. Lean into Him. Learn to rely on Him. And He will lead you exactly where you need to go because you can't do it without Him. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me but one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were uh, to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them out of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me and they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and uh, despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Scripture doesn't tell us how much time elapsed between the king's permission to go and Nehemiah's departure, but according to the Antiquities of the Jews, it's a first century historical record written by. Uh, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. It was uh, five years, according to him. Now, again, the Bible doesn't confirm or contradict that, but if you consider the amount of planning that had to be involved in gathering supplies, including clearing a forest, moving the materials and other resources to the site, not to mention the preparation for meeting resistance, not only from their enemies, but as we'll see in the coming weeks from within the city of Jerusalem itself, this certainly was was not a haphazard project. Now, Nehemiah was well-supplied, well-prepared and well-protected. When he says, now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, That's literally translated from the ancient Hebrew as officers of the army and cavalry. So Nehemiah was traveling with a company of highly trained and seasoned soldiers. And of course, no sooner they arrived, they're met with immediate resistance from the neighboring nations. Sanballat the Horonite, we know from the Elephantine Papri. It's a, a collection of 4th and 5th century B.C. legal documents. We know that he was the governor of Samaria and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab. Right. So the Samarians, Ammonites, and Arabs, they all take their stand against Nehemiah. And the Jews. So after taking time to rest probably for three days, it was a long journey. Uh, We know it took Ezra four months to get there. Nehemiah gets there. He rests for three days and then he goes on a secret mission at night to survey the city. Secret because we know from chapter six that some of the Jewish leadership were compromised. They were consorting with the neighboring nations against Nehemiah. In fact, some of the nobles of Judah, the leaders of the Jews, had sworn an oath to Tobiah. So Nehemiah, who's aware of this, doesn't want the specifics of his plan to rebuild being reported back to their enemies, at least not until the actual rebuilding uh, begins. He wants to keep them in the dark as long as possible because of the imminent danger they're living in. Remember, the walls are broken down. It's a defenseless city. In fact, when Nehemiah says, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. The word trouble, it's ra in the ancient Hebrew. It's, it's a very strong Hebrew word. It means evil. It was usually associated with grievous harm when it was done to others. Okay, It's important we understand, just as Nehemiah clearly understood, the more you learn to rely on God in your life, the more you'll realize just how much the world is against you. Please understand, I'm not talking about the church isolating itself from lost people. In this world, Not at all. Our entire calling is focused on making disciples and reaching the lost. Okay, We're supposed to be in this world, loving the people of this world, but not of this world. Loving the people in the world while not being in love with this world. While Jesus was praying to the Father, he said, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's talking about us, his disciples, his followers. Later in the same prayer, he said, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world. John 7, 11 and 14. We are in the world, obviously, we're supposed to be, in order to reach those who are lost with the love of Christ, the truth of the gospel, but we're not to be of this world. And because we're not of the world, Jesus was clear, we'll be hated by it. That's simply a reality of the life of a follower of Christ if you're living, in it, living it like he did. At times in this world, those who do not know him will hate you because you do know him. And yet living like Jesus lived necessarily means being different than the rest of the world. There's no way around it, which also means you will unquestionably be as hated at times today when you live like Jesus did as his disciples were then. Later in John's gospel, Jesus says it plainly again. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He He didn't say the world might hate you. He said, because you're not of the world, the world hates you. If they uh, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. By all things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me, John 15, 19 through 21. The idea that you can live your life like Jesus did, And at the same time, be fully accepted into popular culture is entirely incompatible with the reality of what Jesus taught and certainly what he demonstrated in his own life. The struggle with that for many of us is the fact that often we want to be liked by people more than we want to be like Jesus. Author Bob Goff said, everybody wants to make a difference in the world, only a few people want to be different than the world look, the reason Jesus didn't fit in with the culture around him was not because he was a rule follower, by the way. The Pharisees followed rules better than anyone, and they were at the center of Jewish culture. It wasn't simply because he was a religious person. Again, there were many religious people from many different religions in the ancient world who were accepted into mainstream culture. And it wasn't because he was a rebel. There were plenty of popular figures who led rebellions around the time of Jesus, certainly among the Jews. So what was it about Jesus that made him not fit in? What kept him on the outside of popular culture and ultimately drove people to hate him? To hate him so much, they killed him. It was because he told them the truth. It was because he loved people enough to tell them the truth, even when the truth was the last thing they wanted to hear. It was his calling before his life was sacrificed to expose a lost and dying world to the truth, and they killed him for it. Listen, everybody loves the Jesus that heals people. Everybody loves the Jesus that feeds people. Everybody loves the Jesus that forgives people. It's the Jesus that tells them they need to be healed and need to be fed and need to be forgiven that they hate. Why? Because the truth forces us to confront the desperate need that sin creates in our own hearts, which makes us very uncomfortable. I mean, listen, to the church, Jesus said, you say I'm rich, I've prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody. And yet not only do we need to hear that, but it was spoken out of a profound love for us. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent, Revelation 3, 17 through 19. Do you see... Every hard word Jesus ever spoke was spoken out of a profound love for people, for you and for me. And yet, as his word makes clear, the majority of people who hear that truth will not only refuse to accept it, but they'll actually hate him and you and I for saying it. And here's, here's the harsh reality. We have to accept about that. If you're going to live like Jesus lived, then you're going to have to tell people the truth even when the truth is the last thing they want to hear no matter how compassionate you are in sharing that truth, the majority of the people will not only refuse to accept it, they'll actually hate you for saying it. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, There's no way around it. Being a follower of Christ, truly following Jesus, answering the call of God for your life, It means at times in your life you're going to be rejected by others, even hated by some. So look, if you can't remember the last time you were rejected or shunned or excluded or pushed away, ignored, even hated maybe by someone because you loved them enough to share the truth, the gospel with them, even though that was the last thing they wanted to hear, if you can't remember the last time someone put you off for saying something about Jesus, If you can't remember the last time you were hated by someone else for following him, maybe you're not following him. Because he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you on account of my name. I don't know. I'm asking you. Maybe you want to be included, accepted, liked by others more than you want to be like Jesus. Look, There's a cultural Christianity that will let you do that, but not true Christianity. That's why his disciples, by the way, ran in every direction but his when Jesus was arrested instead of following him, because they didn't want to be hated by the world the way Jesus was hated. They didn't want to suffer rejection and persecution for being associated with him, so they pretended they were not associated with him. I'll just tell you, not a whole lot has changed in that regard because sadly there are many believers today who claim to follow Christ and yet when confronted with an opportunity to share that truth with others, you wouldn't have the slightest idea they have any association with Christ at all. Why? Because they want to be liked by the world more than they want to be like Jesus. We're probably all guilty of that at times in our lives if we're being honest. I certainly have been. But listen, at some point, if you're going to actually follow him, you have, to, you have to get settled with, you have to be okay with being disliked, even hated at times by this world, because if they persecuted Jesus, they're going to persecute you on account of his name. Some of the harshest things that have ever been said to me in my life, some of the worst treatment have come from People I've been closest to who don't follow Christ and don't want to hear about it when I tell them about Him. By the way, that's why we need each other. We'll get into that more in the chapters ahead. But listen, this is the cost of sharing the truth with this world. Deep distrust and even hate at times by other people simply for telling them the truth, and that is the last thing they want to hear. And yet that is exactly what real love looks like. It's what every single one of us is called by God to do course that means learning to rely on him because that calling on your life it's bigger than you the calling on your life is bigger than you it's bigger than your family it's bigger than this church and this city we're a part of in fact it's so big you can't accomplish it on your own you're gonna have to learn to rely on God for that let's pray